there's going to be a political uprising that's mm-hmm. going to s- affect some of these things. It could be everything from taxation to prohibition of the use of certain technologies for goods and services. And these prohibitions can be quite effective. You're listening to Pardon the Disruption with your host, Tom Young. Hey guys, welcome to the show. This is Tom Young. Let's go around the room. This is Bart Gallo. This is TJ Young. And this is Rohan Kapoor. Hey, in this episode, we're going to talk about uh, a recent Bain report that came out from Bain and Company called Labor 2030. And it is a, it's an economic report that anchors off of the impact of automation in terms of their view of how they see it impacting the economy. Now, it's a fairly long white paper, I think 60, 70 pages. And if you're not into economics and stuff like that, you probably won't find it interesting. But we all read it to get a sense of what their economic view was of automation, specifically around the labor markets. So before I get into some of the deconstruction there, what were your guys' initial thoughts? And was it a good read? Did you enjoy it? It's very dense. I thought they were rather conservative in terms of predicting the impact from automation. But it was, it was really the only report that I saw at that scale kind of comparing the trends in automation to the other two factors in the report. So it's demographics, inequality, and automation. That's kind of their value here, kind of looking at those three trends, but uh, in likeness to each other, and then drawing a, conclu- a conclusion from there. It's, it, it, to me, it's, it, was, it was on par with the McKinsey Global Institute report that came out in 2013, where they talked about multiple technologies and its impact on the society. Um, but anyway, I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a very good report. They didn't delve into the technology so much and to say this technology is going to do that. And they didn't talk about RPA or cognitive or, you know, machine learning, things like that. But they just talked about it in general, assuming that it will work and will impact it. But I thought what they they brought in some new terms or new paradigms economically. And the thing that they talked about were two things. You have the automation trend, which we've been talking about on this podcast and within our business, in conjunction with a demographic shift in the U.S. that's going to compound each other that's going to drive higher wealth inequality. So when you guys read through that, did you? what was your sense of, of some of those things? Did you find it controversial? Did you? One thing I thought they did a good job of is kind of talking about automation in the context of a lot of trends um, that we've seen going on mm-hmm. since before we were talking about automation. Um, so like the decoupling of higher productivity and higher wages is something that we've been seeing, I think, since the early 70s, that trend sort of started. So I think they gave some good uh, macroeconomic data around um, shifts in the way goods are being produced that are going to continue that decoupling. So they said that their prediction was by 2030, and again, these predictions that are tied to dates, you have to be not only right, you have to be right with the right timing, and that's very difficult. But just for for purpose of the conversation, they predicted that twenty five to twenty to twenty five percent of the jobs, about forty million jobs between now and twenty thirty, would be eliminated uh, through this um, transformation happening in our society, and so that that creates that displacement happened is happened before when we went from an agrarian society to an industrial society and when we did post-industrial transformations. But they happened uh, uh, not that fast. 
Yeah. I think also the skills you needed to develop to retrain yourself were a lot less advanced than the gaps people will have to cross to retrain. Yeah, they really emphasize, emphasize those points again on, on the trend. So you mentioned one with the decoupling of uh, wages and productivity, mm -hmm. but the trend cycle, they really emphasize the fact that those cycles are now so much shorter and so much more extreme than perhaps we've seen in the past. So they highlight, I think, interest rate trends, you know, they're going to go up and they're going to come down uh, in a much shorter cycle than perhaps we've seen. And there's a few other examples of different trends that happen. That right. Way, so. And they're happening at machine speed because the technology is a big driver now. But humans still have biological speed to try to retrain and adjust and yeah. you know, change. But also due to a high perception of risk. Right. So just because fewer economists can tell the future or are less confident about the future, those interest rates go up and down based on their kind of sentiment about it, right? Right, just Which overall volatility. Overall volatility, direction. sentiment about investing. I thought a very interesting point from the demographic perspective was, they, you know, they focused a lot on the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. And it's been, you know, it's been a you know, prediction for a long time how that's going to affect the market. Do we have enough funding to cover <laughs> some of the um, social costs of Medicare later in life? Right. Or do we have to dip into another pool of funds? Um, what was interesting in talking about new definitions as you brought up, they looked at, you know, splicing up people's lifespan and they kind of introduced two new concepts. One of them was in early in life. They called it the uh, second adolescence. Yeah. Do you see that part? Yeah. Where it was, I think it was 18 to 29. Mm -hmm. And the point there being, we have this huge group of people, you know, the baby boomers about to retire within the next decade, at least the majority of them, uh, decade, 15 years from now, maybe. Uh, but you don't have that incoming pool of new workers because right, they're, they're staying in school. They're staying or in school, taking longer to figure out what direction. Living with their parents. Yep. The, the right. cost it's delayed. Of, the cost mm -hmm. of adulthood is now so much higher right. relative to their to wage. To make that jump. So, so mm -hmm. let's let's clear those five and let's talk about that because that that does affect some of the the impacts of things we're talking about. So the first one was childhood, and that was zero to seventeen. Then there was second adolescence, which goes from eighteen to twenty nine. Mm -hmm. Uh, productive and reproductive, uh, which is 30 to uh, 54. And, it, and that, that's interesting to use the term reproductive because people were having children much earlier in prior iterations. Uh, and then pre-retirement, and that is 55 to 74. It's interesting to move it all the way out to 74. And then senior citizen, which is 75 and older, which is, again, probably a 10-year shift in those last three categories. Yeah, because people are living longer. And that was yeah. another point they brought up, just the elongated lifespan. Right, and they said that the trend that we just talked about where the workforce is being replaced kind of later because of the second adolescence, it, um, didn't the report also mention that it's a little bit balanced out because some of the baby boomers or folks approaching that sort of age group are um, staying in the workforce longer because of those improvements to lifespan? Well, this, so it's it, slightly offsetting? It's more people that would also need a job, though. If they're working, if they're if they're able to work, then they will because they have to sustain themselves longer. So if the average lifespan was in their 70s before, now it's in the 80s, they have to now have right. enough funds to cover themselves in later retirement. Those younger folks are going to be coming into the workforce anyway, so there there is going to be a. Quite a bit of labor that needs to find work. Yeah, there was. An, cool. I think that last segment, um, the kind of seventy-five and older segment, it was interesting. The report highlighted um, that age group, and they talked about their consumption patterns, um, the fact that they are obviously um, 
they're going to be consuming more than that age group in previous generations. Um, and I think, but the net effect, but I don't think was going to be uh, the net effect of people working later versus coming into the workforce later. I think it was not going to kind of, um, it, it wasn't going to balance out. The, yeah, no, I, I don't think it was suggesting that it would be a full offset, maybe just some slight relief yeah. trend in the other direction, but I don't think it could compete with the overall wave. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. So uncertainty. Th here's the issue. They, they talk about 20 to 25, it's like 40 million people losing their jobs. And here, here's the problem that people have digesting that fact today. It's a, it's a huge amount. And when you look at unemployment data and the current job market you're seeing today, um, a lot of indicators that are saying it's going the other way. And in the Bain report, they talk about the notion that we're going to see a lot of turbulent times, meaning that it's going to go up. You're going to see a lot of ups. You're going to see a lot of downs. And it's not going to be in a straight line. And and the, the problem with the, the, the so I really like this report. So I, so I don't want to say anything negative about it, but I do want to point out some problems in relying too much on uh, macro data, which is macro data is not micro data. So if I use averages, so I say the average wage is going up by uh, 4%, you know, within that average, you have people going up 50% and people going down 20%. And, and the numbers change at a level that um, the averages are, are some level misleading. If I bring a billionaire into the room and say the average net worth in a room is, you know, two hundred million dollars, that two hundred million does not describe the people in the room at all. In fact, the average is misleading. So when you look at macroeconomic data, you often have to uh, take into consideration the breakup of that. So the issue in reading this report, because this ties back to our the book that we have coming out, which it talks about how automation is going to drive. Uh, job destruction in the white-collar workforce. What Bain is arguing here is that's going to happen, and we're going to have a compilation of a demographic shift where we're going to see less people but a lot less jobs, and it's going to drive a lot of social tension in the entire system. So I go back to this notion of inequality, and which is what Bain argues is the outcome Another way to think of inequality is wealth concentration. And there was a video that came out called Wealth Inequality in America. It got a tremendous amount of views, 10, 12 million views. And it was done by guys from Harvard and Berkeley. And it showed how wealth concentration was skewing to the 1%. Very good video if you haven't seen it. Let's put it in the show notes, Jordan, so we can see. People can go look at that. And that video hasn't been updated to my knowledge. But... The, the wealth concentration is happening as a result of some of these changes in technology where, again, we've talked about it before, you see these digital companies creating with very few employees but a tremendous amount of wealth, and it goes to a few people. And when you have this inequality, you have this, this economic issue that's driving, for example, if I make a billion dollars, let's just even say I make a million dollars a year. If I make a second million, that entire second million goes straight to the bank because I didn't spend the first million. And so when you start to concentrate wealth to the top, it has a, uh, a dampening effect 
on economic activity because our whole economy is based on a consumption-based economy. So again, th these are kind of dry principles, but if you if you have to take some time to understand this to say, and again, we're 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 saying what's going to happen in a few years. I think it's going to be a. It, this is my personal opinion now. I think there's going to be devastating job losses. Well, automation exacerbates what you just brought up. So in the report as well, they talk about their analysis or Bain's analysis on who automation is going to affect the most. And it's largely going to affect people making five-figure incomes. People making six figures or more to a yeah, much lesser 30, extent. 30 to 60 was the Goldilocks zone. 30 to 60,000 Disruption that they called out. Yeah, in USD. So again, and there's an inherent exaggeration or amplification of the income inequality because the people that are losing their jobs less frequently also happen to be making more money. Mm -hmm. so they're spending more years employed and making more money just to make that divide even greater. Yeah. And I think the other interesting piece is the, the report also goes into looking at like the business, the business risks, uh, the risk that the business face, businesses face over the next 20 years as well, because there's obviously a massive impact on people with job losses, but there's also an existential threat to businesses as they face up to the fact that the way they have to operate to survive in this new environment of volatility is completely different to anything that they've seen before. And it may even necessitate them relooking at performance metrics, organizational structures in order to really benefit. So it's people, definitely, um, businesses, the report pulls in as well and says, hey, you guys also need to realize that this is going to be a big threat to what you're doing. Well, they, they they write you know their their forecast, and again, I, I, they did a great job. I'm not saying anything, but when you start forecasting out two and three decades, is a all you're really doing is giving a, a direction that you see happening. It doesn't take into consideration any exogenous or outside events that could change that. Now, <clears throat> when we talk about inequality at the level that I th I see coming. There's going to be a political uprising that's mm -hmm. going to affect some of these things. It could be everything from taxation to prohibition of the use of certain technologies for goods and services. And these prohibitions can be quite effective. I mean, the government is 30% of the economy. If they start make, dictating certain things, it's going to affect the implementation protocols in terms of how some of this stuff gets done. And they, they were a bit humble, especially when they got to more of the forward-looking implications of what mm -hmm. was going to come. They were saying, hey, we don't really have the answers here, but we can at least um, muse about what might happen. But what they were very sure about was that the government is very likely to intervene. Yeah. Because of pa if past indicators were any kind of reference point, Whatever will happen, the government will step in, especially in the West and you know countries like the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that was that's definitely something that the report highlights and something that I think we've also talked about is you know you've got demographic and labor force influences here where you know you've got a much older workforce um, that are going to be drawing on existing pensions. You've got. Um, massive decrease in jobs for the lower medium skilled workers and all of this is happening in a very volatile kind of interest rate macroeconomic so you've got a lot of factors playing in here that the, it's going to come to a stage where the government has to step in and start trying to pull some of the levers that they pulled 
in the past um, to try and balance some of this out. Um, yeah, it's... So I I think in one of the prior shows, we, we referenced this book by Martin Ford uh, called Lights in the Tunnel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in that book, he talks about why wealth concentrates in digital economies. And it has to do... The, the metaphor that he used, which was a great metaphor, which was if you think of a business as a factory on a river, right? And the economic flow is that river. So when th- the resources get sucked from the river into the business in the form of capital formation, that business then uses that capital. And and if you're, if you're experiencing you know, economic growth, they would be putting more water back in than they took out. Right. And, and then the, as you go downstream, the river gets wider and heavier flow and you have economic benefits. What he suggested was the factors that drive the output of water of that factory are changing because of automation, because of digital technologies. So that the water going in from a capital formation is not coming back to the river. It's not that it's being destroyed. It's just being parked outside of the economic uh, boundary conditions. Now, if you look at what's happened since 2008, the Fed came in and bailed out all these banks with TARP funds and different funds. And the banks had 0% interest and were able to loan all kinds of stuff. So the balance sheets got really fat. But the money was given to the people who had a tremendous amount of wealth, and it just sat there. So if you look at the the money creation over the last 10, 12 years, it's been met with a corresponding reduction in the velocity of that money. And so if money doesn't move, you don't see inflation. If you had such money expansion and the money is moving like in the same pace as everything else, you're going to see rapid uh, inflation because you don't have the economy growing that fast. You have more money chasing fewer goods. But if that money is sitting in the bank somewhere in our vault, it's uh, it's not driving the, the, the economic output. And that's what he argues, Martin Ford. It was a very good argument. And the reason that the algebra changes in that factory when you go digital has to do with the fact that the means of production don't lend themselves to putting it back out into the market. So if I have to hire lots of workers and subcontractors to perform my goods and services for my factory, those people take that money out and they they put it back in the river in the form of rent, buying cars, buying groceries. But if I don't need to pay them, I just keep the money myself. And I don't need any more money. And that's what wealth inequality drives. It drives a drying up of the riverbed downstream. And that has ripple effects for other industries because those people will not buy anything else. Well, they're, they're done. They're done. I mean, how many steaks a day can you eat? Really, how many? Legitimately, how? And, and I, I go back to the person who makes a million dollars will not spend the second million. But on the on the middle lower class side, there are more in scope for this automation trend. There is a compressive nature. Do you to think th- that Bain got that right? I, I I think that they tried to make too broad a brush on the the income being a correlation to who's going to be impacted with automation. No, I think well they were trying to make the point that the de- the demand side 
capacity will decrease if a larger percent of the population would be automated. If fewer people, fewer potential consumers there to eventually buy your products or consume your services. Right, and you lack the demand to drive growth. So, I mean, you're going to grow and sell to who? Even as price, even as price of those goods decreases as a result of automation. Well, but those have to align. That that was kind of the point of their study because these trends are not parallel, so that the price of goods coming down yeah. will not directly correlate with the, yeah. the amount of people losing their jobs and what they can eventually afford to buy. Mm-hmm. Right. So. If there is a gap, what what that delta? How does that affect the global economy? How does that affect the social rest, social unrest? Hmm. Do you, I mean, given the nature of our political system, whether it be in the U.S. or Europe or really anywhere, I mean, this is this is pretty heady, complex stuff. You really have to. This is not something you can do in a hundred and sixty character tweet, right? <laughs> do you think our our political system has any chance of figuring this out? in a way that's not a knee-jerk reaction to things they see? It'll be all knee-jerk reactions. I think I, I'm actually surprised that the topic of automation hasn't really entered um, like presidential debates mm-hmm. or even lesser political um, elections. I, I really don't see it at all as a talking point, but I think you're going to see it evolve into one where there's going to be a champion of the people that's going to be anti-robot. It's going to say, hey, we need to uh, employ robot taxes. I'm sure you've seen that in some articles. Well, as science, a fiction, science fiction fi- figured that out, right? But it's, it's, it's one way to have it in a book somewhere, but another way to actually convince the populace to adapt Turned it for real. Legislation. I, it, you know, maybe this is another paradigm that I have when I watch modern media and even modern conversation. T- people tend to create a false uh, dualism. Uh, or or sim- simple explanation for things. Uh, this happened, then that. It's always if that, then this. This happened, then that. It caused this. Single variable that created a single outcome, and everything is every outcome or everything is trying to describe it based on one thing that happened. Because that's a headline when you say but, something that way. But the reality is, it's much more complex. So when we talk about wealth inequality, they'll say, well, it's government taxation rules. Well, maybe that has something to do with that contributes to it, but there's a whole bunch of other factors that go into wealth inequality, right? It could be digital technologies that we've talked about at length. It could be changing demographics, right? It, it could be a whole bunch of factors that drive multivariables that's complex. There's not a simple answer. And when, when we devolve things to simple answers, we end up with... I'll, I'll say silly public policy discussions and, and implementations. Well, this is the thing. I think when you look at the ability of the government to make um, really help with this, with, with the topic that we're discussing, it makes it very difficult when you have, uh, I think, administrations that come in for a term and they either set policy, which a future administration is going to reverse entirely, um, or they fail to set policy in time during that term. So government, most governments are set up on, on that kind of structure. You look at China, countries like China, the one party um, that's in rule, and you know, set aside all the advances that they're making in, in automation. And the fact that you have one government that is in control, that is setting policy, that is really not going to be interrupted in the future, 
Um, and now their ability to influence things um, and really make an impact is is so much greater. So I don't know whether the government structure that we have set up today is the right one for the future. All I do know is that there's a lot of stuff that's changing now that we have never seen before that's going to require us to rethink completely the way that we're governed, completely the way that we work and live. Um, and so I, I don't think that the government structure we have today is is the right one that's going to help us benefit in the future. Well, the question is, what would they do differently than today? So a, lo a lot of the commentary we get around that gets really the most heated responses is around fiscal policy. Mm -hmm. Are they, oh, they're going to raise the, pro the progressive tax system. I'm going to pay 70% of whatever, my paycheck. But what about easing the tension of how easy it is to transition from old skills to new skills. That's one of the topics we talk about in terms of why automation is so disruptive. Because people who know one or two skill sets, they've been doing the same career for 20, 30 years, yep. you know, can't teach an old dog new tricks, that's going to expand across the population, right? So people cannot learn new skills and achieve the credentials they need to hire into these new roles fast enough to keep up with the change. So there's going to be that delta, right? So is there something that could be done by the governmental authority or by some other entity to ease that transition to make it easier for people to learn new skills. That was one of the, one of the final out, uh, you know points in the Bain report is that they're commenting on the short-term disruption, but they still think that long-term humanity will adjust to the newly automated or digitized future mm -hmm. with a new set of skills and jobs that will be more relevant. Yeah. Well, there's a crazy efficiency that comes with some of the stuff that you're talking about and the government stepping in to, to kind of set up incentivized structures to help put in, put in place these kind of programs that's going to help people reskill, retrain. There's almost a crazy efficiency with the way that China is governed by having just one that kind of rules all. The ability for them to implement policy, the ability to them to for for them to actually set up some of these programs if they deem it to be correct, right? And that's the big question. I, I get what you're saying, Rohan, but I would say, I, I would I would say this: the current system we have absolutely does not work. Yep. But I would say, with a higher degree of certainty, I would say all the other suggestions won't work either. So. And the temptation that you have by observing China to say one-party rule basically says, if we could just be organized and aligned, yeah. now you're assuming that... The, now, here, here's the problem with that. We don't even know what's right at this point. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, I couldn't say... I mean, I studied this quite a bit. I, wouldn't, I couldn't say with any degree of certainty what's the right outcome. So on our sister podcast with Karen and I, we talk about what happens post-digital in the experience economy. And one of the things we looked at was a happiness quotient. So there's like a world happiness report that comes out. And you can argue about the methodology. But a lot of the Scandinavian and Nordic countries came out with higher happiness quotients than, than say, the, the more productive Western economies, like the US or Germany or the UK. And when you look at wealth inequality index, I think it's in the index in the Bain report, they actually look at it. it's figure 20 on page 31, figure 28. The higher your wealth inequality, the lower you tend to be on the happiness report. So wealth inequality drives macro unhappiness in society. And so if we, if, if we could agree on that as a problem statement, then at least you could start to have a foundation of a discussion
about what is the role of government to do anything about that. And universal basic income, that sounded crazy when it was brought up, is being thought about more and more as a legitimate public policy response to this wealth inequality. Right. It's the whole question of if you give a dollar to the richest 10% or give a dollar to every person in the lowest 10%, the, the, per, the people in the lower 10% will take more of that dollar and actually go and spend it sooner rather than the top 10% will just save it. Like, it's your other point, right? So you want to have that dollar have more spending power in the short term to bolster the economy if it's dull. Yeah, I guess the problem... The, yeah, the problem with government right now is they're definitely going to have to intervene, as this report highlights. It's difficult for a government today to set policy, which is going to come into place in 10 years, 15 years time, when they're going to be out potentially in two years time. And there's going to be a new set of opinions potentially that come in and, and change that change and dilute the impact of the policy that's set today. So that's going to be a, a big challenge. Well, if right. we talk about looking at historical indicators for what might happen in the future. Look at what happens when extreme inequality continues on that path. Revolution, people get killed, governments change, war. Mm -hmm. So something has to change. Right. I mean, well, if, if we're going to take the Bain method of looking at the past... The, the argument for UBI looks very, it kind of exists outside of what your political beliefs are around something like wealth redistribution, because at some point there may be some players, um, wealthy players in the economy who absolutely want UBI, even though it's not something they might have politically supported in 2010, because if the people who own the robots can't enjoy the wealth that they're getting from owning the robots because the people who don't own the robots kill them all, then you have a problem. Yeah, so what's the point of going on? Right? <laughs> yeah. the, the whole nature is not just uh, eternal growth with no end. It's equilibrium, right? right. That's kind of the, the, one of the philosophies governing today's monetary policy of growth, but slow and sustainable growth. Right. It's uh, kind of similar to the Fed strategy right. of yeah, manipulating but the, interest again, rates. Again, TJ, I go back to this macro versus micro, right? Because if I, if the Fed policy of... They talk about the dual mandate of economic growth and uh, full employment. Um, there's some debate about whether the, the, the full employment is part of the second mandate. But to what end? I mean, and when we look at it in macro numbers, we miss what's going on underneath the covers. So, again, we, we're, we're probably too deep for this podcast, but I'll just leave it at one, one, one more thing. When we talk about what we're seeing today. We're seeing labor scarcity. And in the Bain report, the new thing that, that I was attuned to in reading that report is the shifting demographics of our society. TJ, you brought up the five categories, the deferment of um, producing children, the reduction in the number of children, the, the more the economy becomes wealthy, those are trends not just in the U.S., but in every country, is that those factors alone are shrinking the growth of the labor force. So that, that by itself, all things being equal, that teach in economics class, all the other things being equal, what happens? You start to see labor scarcity. And I think with Trump in office, and some of the things they've done around 
some of the tariffs and the focus on bringing jobs back politically and things like that. You've seen a short-term bump in unemployment in terms of it going down. And you're seeing wages go up, which is a great political outcome if it's sustainable. It's happening right now, so there's no debate about that. The issue is, is it sustainable? And I can only see what I see looking at this is I see a very dramatic wave of job displacement coming. But it's not coming for everybody. In fact, and I think this is probably right that Bain had it right, the top 20% will enjoy the benefits of the automation component to this equation in the next decade. And in this podcast and in, in our consulting business, what we want to help people with is help them understand how to be in that 20% and what do you need to be in that 20% and then what do you need to be in that 20% to thrive and succeed. And I would just say it goes back to some of the early things we talked about, attitude and aptitude. You have to have the attitude to learn new things, be open to new things. Like if you talked to me 10 or 15 years ago at UBI, I would just close my ears because I thought it was crazy. So you have to be open to the possibility that your prior belief systems, your prior knowledge mm -hmm. uh, don't apply. You have to be open to new possibilities. And if you don't have that attitude of being open and new, I don't think you're going to do well. And then the second thing is you have to have the aptitude. And this is, I don't want to end on a down note, but I think we said this before, 100 is represents the midpoint IQ. And a, a half the people have an IQ of 100 or less. And this is pretty heady stuff for people to try to figure out. So the, the challenge is people need to claw up as best they can if they want to be in that 20%. It's not going to be the, the top 20% of smartest people necessarily. It's going to be the people who act early and create those niche skills. Any parting comments from anybody? Scary. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a nature versus nurture guy. and In that discussion, I'm a nurture guy. So I think if, if the right models are created and the right opportunities are created for people to transition, I think that people can learn those new skills and they may seem heady, but I think it's just because it's different and they, they're, whether real or perceived, there are barriers to access and opportunity into some of these fields or even just in terms of time and opportunity to go and learn these new things. So I think there's definitely new models that can be created to help alleviate that risk in terms of not having the right amount of people or risk of having too many people who want work, not having work. Um, but to your point, I don't think everyone can make the transition. Yeah, I think people have to push past the fear of the unknown and change, which, by the way, whenever you're evolving is always going to be there, right. <laughs> regardless of whether you're 30 years old, 25 years old or 50 years old. Um, so, right. Yeah, there'll be some additional strain because of the speed of that change and right. the speed at which you'll have to adjust. But it doesn't mean it's not doable. It's just, I think, a little bit more abrupt than previous yeah. shifts we've seen. So let me ask one final question and we'll wrap. As you think about the people you interact with outside of our circle, and how aware of, do you think they are of what we're just talked about? Not, uh, not aware, especially if I think of people maybe outside the U.S. that I know, 
definitely not aware, not thinking about it. And I go back to that video, which we'll post in the notes about the um, wealth inequality in the US. As part of that video, they went and surveyed people and they asked the question, "How? what, what is your perception on wealth inequality today? And people were so <laughs> far off, right? Right. They were so far off the mark. Um, and I think that's very um, an analogous of what's happening now. I think people either not thinking about it or even if they are, they're very far off the mark of where the actual reality lies. As far as quantifying it, definitely. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're right, because otherwise we would see more societal anxiety. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I don't see that. Yep. So the only time I really see any level of anxiety <coughs> socially is with parents who are sending their kids to college about what they should major in. They sense a, they sense a change, and if they're going to pay couple hundred thousand dollars to go to college they want to get it right they sense no return on investment in right. this case the price yeah. is probably the biggest challenge in that decision they understand the implications of like i don't know if i'm getting what i'm paying for here all right yeah. that's a different show we're going to do an episode <laughs> on the eroding business case yeah. of college because that is a yes. interesting point but that's this is a long conversation uh i'm glad we had this because this is a very good report this is going to be very similar to the book we have coming out and we look forward to we have a meetup coming up mm-hmm. uh tomorrow night in new york and so we'll talk a little bit about some of these concepts at that meetup as well so mm-hmm. thanks very much everybody all right thanks. thanks thanks thank you hey thanks for listening to the show today pardon the disruption if you enjoyed our discussion i'd invite you to head over to our homepage at www.rumjog.com you can go there and check out our perspectives page and hear more podcast episodes, read some articles. It's some pretty interesting stuff. You can get access also to our digital disruption series. This is a meetup that we do mostly in New York and New Jersey area where we discuss the impact of these technologies on our society and the way we live and work. We do this alongside of industry experts in various fields like crowdsourcing, automation, and blockchain. Uh, the, the, the technologies that are disrupting our world today. Anyway, if you like that, you can also follow us on social media uh, at Twitter on the handle at Rumjog. We look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you.